0: Tuesday, April the twelfth, twenty twenty-two, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be moderating today's show, show featuring three of the wisest guys I know—Hoover's Goodfellows, as we jokingly refer to them. That includes the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, Hoover Institution senior fellows all. And our very special guest today, former Treasury, former Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, Harvard University President Emeritus, currently that school's Charles W. Elliott University professor, the renowned economist Lawrence Summers. Professor Summers, welcome to Goodfellows. Good to be with you. So let's start with the news out of Washington today, Larry. Um, consumer prices rose 8.5% in the year through March, per the government's report. This is the fastest inflation rate since the end of 1981. Two questions for you, sir. Number one, is this the high water mark as far as inflation is concerned, or is there more pain to come? Second question Joe Manchin blames Joe Biden and the Federal Reserve. Joe Biden blames Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin, I don't think he blames anybody. I think he likes this situation. Help us make sense of what's going on in terms of inflation and how we got to this point.
1: We have an inflation problem. We're going to have an inflation problem for a long time. I think today's number is probably a local maximum, and it's probably going to come down over the next few months simply because we're not going to have gasoline prices go up by 20% in a month uh, again, but we've got a real inflation problem. You know, as Neil's long books explain and the reason they're long, major historical phenomena don't have single causes that are straightforward. Mm -hmm. I think there's a pretty good analogy between what we've been through with inflation and the experience of the 1960s and 1970s. In the 1960s, we had overly stimulative policy that led to a real inflation problem. And then after we had dealt with it in an unsatisfactory way, the perfect storm was compounded by really bad luck with the OPEC cartel. And I think something similar is the way to think about uh, where we are uh, now, overly stimulative policy by... Fiscal policy, by the monetary policy of the Fed, has now been compounded by the adverse shocks that no one, at least in economics, would have expected from the Ukraine war and from uh, COVID damage uh, in China. But it all means a pretty serious uh, inflation problem that is going to be with us. And I think the sobering fact that the body politic unfortunately hasn't fully absorbed is this, if you look at the last 75 years of US macro history, there has never been a moment when unemployment was below four and inflation was above four when we didn't have a recession within the next two years. And so I think the task of managing a soft landing here is an extraordinarily difficult one for any Federal Reserve. And I think a Federal Reserve that has made the mistakes that this one has is going to find it even harder, uh, given that the extent of their anti-inflation resolve is probably open to question in some quarters.
2: Larry, can I ask a question that you don't usually get, which is really about how you arrived at your view that we were gonna have an inflation problem way back in February of last year, when almost nobody else, certainly very few economists, and none whatever at the Federal Reserve saw that coming. It seems to me that you were thinking as much like a historian as like an economist when you formed that view. And your answer there just kind of gave some more evidence for that view because you you immediately went to an analogy with the late 60s and early 70s. How much of your thinking early last year when you you came to this view was actually historical rather than straightforward macro-based I'd give a slightly
1: different answer, Neil, but I see your point. I would say my secret sauce is arithmetic, not complicated mathematics. Um, I discounted complicated, dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium models, which I think of as inevitably being prisoners of the recent past. I did arithmetic. I said to myself, how much room is there left in the bathtub how much water is being put in the bathtub, is the bathtub going to overflow? And when I did that arithmetic with respect to uh, inflation, I saw that we were gonna be ramping up the growth rate of total spending into the double digits and that the capacity of the economy wasn't gonna be growing anything like that. And therefore that inflation was almost inevitable. I asked myself what moments in the past looked like this, and I saw the same thing. And I asked myself, what do different approaches uh, suggest? I have a set of so-called Keynesian approaches to uh, thinking about macroeconomics. John has approaches that are quite uh, different, that are more in a monetarist uh, tradition, but I kind of thought about all the different approaches, and they all seemed to me to be flashing red, and that led me to be fairly confident. I also try in all my forecasts to recognize that the world is extremely probabilistic, and so what I said was that there was a two-thirds chance we were going to have a real problem, that it might be inflation it might be a hard landing from stopping uh inflation and i might turn out to have been wrong as the year went on i got increasingly confident that i had been uh right i think part of the uh problem of other people was they thought in terms of a single forecast part of what was wrong was people were prisoners of recent history. You know, economists do time series statistics on the last 40 years of data. If for 40 years inflation has been stable, then whatever statistical procedure you use on stable inflation, you're gonna assume that nothing changes inflation very much because nothing ever did change uh, inflation uh, very much. So, I think that the secret or a secret to being right is maintaining a certain eclecticism of uh, perspective, which helps you avoid overconfidence, helps you avoid being excessively a prisoner of the recent past, and leaves you open uh, to a wide range of. of uh possibilities. I also think that it's extraordinarily important um, to avoid uh motivated belief um, and to try to form judgments about what is rather than what would prefer to be. And I think many in the political process preferred to believe that spending they had long favored was easily affordable. I think many in the Fed preferred to believe that the policy paradigm they had laid down at an earlier moment would continue to have applicability. And I frankly think many in the financial community prefer to be in general alignment with uh, the Fed than to be in a different place. It's trivializing the issue to say people want uh, invitations to the annual Jackson Hole conference, but it captures um, an aspect of uh, the uh, psychology. And by the way, I don't there's nothing partisan about this. I think that if one wanted to explain why so many people were so wrong about uh, weapons of uh, mass destruction in Iraq, or if one wants to explain why there was so little criticism in the early years uh, with respect to Vietnam, they're obviously not economic issues. And so it's not the same economic mechanics, but I think the same kinds of psychological and organizational
3: uh, mechanisms are at play. Can I, uh, can I take a turn? Uh, <laughs> uh, I, uh, first, I want to salute what you just said. What I see in in, in the Larry Summers secret sauce here is, is you understood aggregate supply a little differently from the Fed. You, you looked at the GDP gap, potential GDP, whereas the Fed uh, at best looks at some labor market indicators, the famous Nehru. And there is nobody in the Fed looking at how many ships can get through the port of Los Angeles. So, so I think they they just missed the the fact that what you just said you did. You looked at the GDP gap. You said you know 1.5 times the fiscal stimulus, guys. Uh, this is too much. And you also pointed to it's not it's not so much econometric models on recent data. I certainly felt as someone I, I I've been worried about inflation and been wrong about <laughs> on the other side for for a long time. But kind of economists gave up. And central bankers gave up Uh, 10 years of trying to get inflation and not not getting anywhere led a lot of people to believe uh, our our, our colleague Bob Hall, I think I can cite him here, says, John, forget about this stuff. Inflation's 2 percent. That's all you ever need to know. (laughs) Uh, And I think that mindset also crept into the central bank. Uh, But let me ask. Let let me move to to where we are now. Um, You said a a local max, uh, which I'm curious about. Um, And and. uh, You you also mentioned your view of a a recession coming ahead. Now, the local max, um, you and I have been talking about this, but there is the question, inflation's gotten going. Now we have negative real rates of interest. The Fed is not raising interest rates, anything like the current, even core inflation rate, let alone the headline inflation rate. So, um, you know, does this negative interest rate itself provide an extra spur? I would have thought you would say, until we get going on positive interest rates, uh, positive real interest rates, inflation will keep uh, keep growing and, and get worse and, and related. Um, you said a recession is coming, and you, you cited inflation and unemployment tends to lead to recession, but I think the mechanism is inflation and unemployment leads the Fed to raise interest rates in a huge, big hurry, which causes the recession. And the final one to put all that together, uh, I, I was on a show yesterday where they, they put me on the spot and said, okay, you're chair of the Fed. What do you do now? And I had to gulp a little bit. If if you're John Taylor and you follow the Taylor rule, you go at 1.5 times eight, and you get some huge amount of interest rates we need right now. So with those things together, do you see well, wh- where's the mechanism that would that would cause inflation to keep going as long as inter- real interest rates are negative? Do you believe in that? Uh, do you think the worry of recession is in fact that the Fed will overdo it? And and the hard one, what would you do now? But I'm sure you have an answer to that that I I, I did not have. <laughs>
1: So three parts to your question. Sorry, um, there's enough transients coming from gasoline prices. The inflation rate annualized that we heard today was for this month annualized to about fifteen percent. Do I think that number is going to come down? Yes, I do think it's going to come down. Do I think that as we go from repl- as as we look at yearly numbers? And monthly numbers from last year that were running at 1 tenth start being 5 tenths, and the 1 tenths move out. Do I think that that is gonna operate to slow inflation? Um, I think those timing mechanisms are going to change the measured CPI inflation. And I think everybody who's immersed in the monthly data agrees with me. I think the more fundamental logic of your question, which is, can we restrain this thing with abnormally low real interest rates, or will this thing get further out of control with abnormally uh, low real interest rates is very profound and is a reason why I think we are not going to succeed um, in bringing inflation down to its target level on the currently envisioned uh, monetary policy path. I agree with you that you need real interest rates that are positive, or you probably need real interest rates that are positive to uh, restrain uh, demand. Um, I caution that um, you have to look at a lot of things and what you're saying makes good sense to me and it tracks theory. There are a lot of surveys out there where a lot of people are saying pessimistic things. Consumers are saying pessimistic things about what they're gonna buy. Small businesses are saying pessimistic things about who they're going to hire, all of that. And that has to give one some grounds for caution. And the fact that people's purchasing power of their incomes are down may mean that they will spend uh, less. So generalized lack of confidence before the Fed acts is also a source of recession risk. What would I do if I were the Fed? I would reassure everybody that I understood that I'd made a mistake by forming a blue ribbon panel of economists to understand and think about the Fed's inflation modeling and forecasting procedures and uh, give it advice, number one. Number, in the same way that militaries, after failed battles, have after action uh, investigations. Number two, I would explicitly back away from the misguided August 2020 flexible average inflation uh, targeting framework, which may or may not have made sense in the context of that moment, but surely does not in the context of this moment. Number three, I would engage in Accurate analytical discussion around the neutral interest rate concept rather than inaccurate discussion, which they have engaged in, in which they say and emphasize that a higher that they're going to compare themselves to a nominal neutral interest rate, which only makes sense if you assume the inflation rate is going to come down. Indeed, I've always thought the assume a can opener jokes were unfair to economists, but they're actually a fair crack uh with respect to uh this Fed. And number four, I would indicate a willingness to do what was uh necessary to um contain inflation, recognizing the neutral uh real interest rate uh concept and I would seek to um, relearn what Paul Volcker, Alan Greenspan, and the Delphic oracles all understood, but what the last three central bank chairs have not understood, which is in a world where, where fallibility is inherent and credibility is valuable, There is every reason to confine one's pronouncements to the vague and oracular, rather than to seek to make highly specific predictions based on particular moments, which will inevitably be falsified to the detriment of one's uh, credibility. So being wrong is bad. Being wrong and more confident about one's view than anyone should be about any view is a higher order of error, and the Fed needs to back away uh, from the current cacophony of excess specificity and confidence that characterizes the world of Fed speak.
3: Yeah, the the the. the um illusion of technocratic confidence about third and fourth order effects is just astounding when you read the Fed, but you won't give us a number, right?
1: I, I, I think, I think the preponderant probability is that is that it will ultimately be necessary to um, cause uh, forward interest rates to be higher. Than uh, they currently are. That the Fed's view, essentially shared by the market, that we're g- gonna get out of inflation without the Fed funds rate crossing three, strikes me as implausible. Not inconceivable,
4: but implausible. Hey, Larry, you you mentioned uh, you mentioned. Uh- the 70s. We've had, we've had a previous episode here called That 70s Show, you know, and, and I, I think what was particularly important for us to, to maybe talk about a little bit more is, is the confluence of these, you know, financial and economic dynamics associated with inflation and, and potential recession and geostrategic shocks, right, as we had in the 70s. Well, we're, we're in the middle of one now uh, associated with the, the war in Ukraine and our response to it, and don't you think the chances are pretty high that it's going to get much worse? And I'm thinking in connection with supply chain constraints. We've seen it in energy, obviously, but some people are already calling it Farmageddon. What's about to happen with, you know, with the the, the uh, lack of access to fertilizer and and uh, and and to, uh, to 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 diesel fuel, which affects uh, affects agriculture in a profound way. And now add on to that, maybe the way too late recognition that our supply chains have become far too vulnerable based on, uh, on, on being so biased in favor of efficiency rather than resilience, and especially those supply chains that run through China, which I think happens to be quite connected with really Russian aggression. Uh, so do, what, do you, what do you think are the chances are that it could get much worse because of really the supply chain issues we're about to face and, and maybe rampant inflation especially in, in the basics that we need, food uh, food in particular.
1: So HR, you know much more about geostrategy uh, than I do. I'm about 75% with what you just said. I think you're right that I will steal and use in the future the phrase farmageddon. I know that there are interpretations under which Rising food prices were a central part of what generated the Arab Spring. I think that the geopolitics in you know, a whole range of emerging markets where populists are already uh, a major issue of rising commodity prices, I think all of that is very serious uh, for uh the world. I think we need to be thinking about what we can do to increase the availability of uh, commodities. If I was in the White House, I would be launching a full review of agricultural policies with a view to maximizing uh, the output of agricultural commodities, for example. I think the I think probably the single most important part of this is uh, something you touched on but didn't uh, develop. Um, You may know the answer to this question. Um, I read that I believe President Xi and President Putin had their 38th meeting recently. I'm not aware of any foreign leader with which any U.S. President or set of U.S. Presidents have had 38 meetings over a 10-year period. I think that if one regards the U.S. opening to China and the way in which that made us the short leg of a triangle and Russia the remote one, If one regards that as a profound event, one has to regard the emerging axis um, as a profound uh, event. And I can't begin to envision what all of its consequences are. I think there is a, I say this with a light touch. I think there is a difference between your kind and my kind on the resilience question uh, that you raised. Your kind thinks that the way to be resilient is to produce everything at home and not to be dependent on foreigners. My kind tends to think that that's the North Korean strategy and it doesn't tend to produce a lot of resilience. That More important aspects of resilience are diversification of chains of uh, supply. And so one has suppliers in multiple uh, different uh, places that holding substantial inventories is an important uh, strategy for maintaining supply. And maintaining norms of openness are ways of doing that because the economist analysis of resilience emphasizes the avoidance of single points of failure. And the strategies that put primary um, emphasis on um, domestic production and not being dependent on foreigners tend as much to concentrate single points of failure as they do. So I would resist your general direction there, even as I agreed with much of the thrust of your question.
4: Yeah, Larry, hey, I, I'll tell you, I think we agree. You know, I, I think the problem now is that we have a single point of failure, which is the southeastern coast of China and and uh and 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 uh and this is affecting obviously everything from you know renewable energy uh hardware and equipment to the upstream components of it involving rare earths and rare earth separation and refinement how about magnets larry i mean they're all made in china you know and a lot of them go into electric cars for example or battery manufacturing or you know how about pharmaceuticals or as we learned during the pandemic ppe right so i I'm not arguing for onshoring. I'm i'm arguing for a combination of onshoring, nearshoring, really just resilience uh, in these supply chains. Inventory,
1: accumula- inventory accumulation, which is right. a big part of it as sure. well, right?
4: Which is why it's going to get worse before it gets better. You can also re-reshore. You
3: know, so- have multiple countries that you uh, that you come from. We certainly we've batted around what happens if or when uh, China invades Taiwan. And the the economic shock from that uh, would be um, really much, much bigger than what we've seen from Ukraine. Trade cut. Imagine trade cutoff in the Pacific. Uh, I, I, of course, am, am not with uh, HR that we need to move all those chip factories to Texas to solve the problem. As you pointed out, many will other you, countries.
4: Will you guys stop? I, I don't say that. I don't say that. I mean, okay. You know, I'm, I, and and you know, I wanted I'm, to get I'm clarity. to, be to think good about. Economic student here because I'm applying for college credit at the end of this. I'm, I'm trying to help so, you. But the the no, I, I no semiconductors. I mean, that's the canary in the coal mine. I think. I mean, I think there are so many other areas now that this is the case. <laughs>
1: Look, I think this is something we need to think uh, very hard about. I, I believe that the best generals are the ones who hate war most. And I believe the best industrial policy experts are the ones who hate it most. And the problem is that the only people who talk about industrial policy are people who love it and are looking for reasons uh, to uh, do it. And anyone who can complete, as you did, to be fair, HR, anybody who can talk for five minutes about why we need industrial strategy or resilience without saying the words, it will create US jobs. <laughs> I have substantial time for it but whenever it comes with a whole set of talk about US uh, jobs, I think then it becomes much more uh, problematic. And I would also say, and Neil could speak to the history of this, uh, I suspect, that I think even with nations where there is substantial hostility, international norms are very important. And I think the ways in which successive US administrations, but the Trump administration at an entirely new level, have undercut the norms of international exchange and trade with the tariffs that were imposed on China has done a lot to make the world less uh, resilient.
2: Yeah, you, Larry yeah. can I ask you a question about that from from an inflation point of view should the Biden administration just uh, get rid of those tariffs right now and why haven't they
1: the it's like arms control you probably want to figure out if you're going to disarm how to get something for your disarmament but they should be looking to get those tariffs off rather than to be proud of having them we did a study at the Peterson Institute recently that estimated that a reasonable program of tariff reduction, much less ambitious than taking off all the Trump tariffs, could take 1.3% off the CPI, which I think would be meaningful with respect to inflation psychology and certainly would dwarf all the talk about gouging and meatpacking and all of that.
3: Unilateral tariff reduction makes stuff cheaper, full stop. Why do we need to be all mercantilist about trying to make someone else lower their tariffs in return?
1: It's good it's, for, it's good when other people reduce their tariffs. And so one needs to think about exchange.
3: Let, let me, I wanted to move on a little and ask you about debt. Um, I was particularly impressed with you, you coming out uh, on, as an inflationist, because of course you've spent, you and I have spent 10 years sparring about secular stagnation. And your previous view that we needed lots and lots of fiscal expansion, and I was just unbelievable. I'm, I'm very impressed when somebody uh, sees new data and changes their mind suddenly. But I'm I'm curious about how deep your conversion uh, has been in this. Uh, as you know, there's not not just the silliness of modern monetary theory, but a big school of thought: uh, Olivier Blanchard, Janet Yellen, uh, telling us that fiscal expansion was essentially costless because interest rates would be low for a, a long, long time. We are clearly now at the output gap is zero. There's no room for fiscal stimulus now. But there's a, a large view that says, you know, we will very shortly be right back down to zero interest rates, secular stagnation. Uh, we don't have to worry about debt. Uh, whereas I, it looks to me like we're going to be in a period of, you know, high interest rates for, for a while. And, and of course, I've always thought uh, that was wrong and debt has to be paid back. Are, are you... A little more of a, a fiscal hawk these days, uh, do you, or do you think if the next recession comes, will there be plenty of room to go right back to fiscal stimulus, uh, or do you think that to some extent we're we're running into with a bond markets and and investors' patience with holding dollars and and a little more sober long-run fiscal policy needs to be sober? long-run fiscal policy. Where do you stand, Larry?
1: Somewhere somewhere in between your various straw men, John. Um, I think that. Um, when I think anybody has to recognize that in a fully employed economy with excessive inflation, the right way to think about fiscal policy is different than what the right way to think about fiscal policy was in an economy with significantly unemployed resources and inflation uh, below target. So Certainly, this is not a time for large-scale fiscal uh, expansion, and I've been uh, very, very clear uh, about that. I think one way to approach this question, and I guess I'd be interested in your view on it, is in Europe, they promulgated the Maastricht criteria in in the early 90s that had a lot of arbitrariness to them that people kind of thought were sort of reasonable. And those criteria said that at a time when the nominal interest rate in Germany was nine, and at a time when the real interest rate in Germany was five, that it was reasonable for countries to have a 60% debt to GDP ratio as a target. And so In a world that's very different than that world, where long-term nominal interest rates are in the twos and long-term real interest rates are negative, it seems to me that if 60 was appropriate with 5% real interest rates, I'm not inclined to high alarm about 100 in a world with zero. Now, 100 going up by 2% a year is a different and much more alarming uh, thing. But I think there is a valid insight that one should pay attention to uh, the level of interest rates and the cost of debt service. Indeed, if one of our children was thinking about buying an apartment, and our advice was sought about what, how much could prudently be borrowed against that apartment, I think we would think about the debt relative to the value of the apartment, and we would think about the annual debt service relative to our child's income, And we probably would think less about the value of the debt relative to our child's income. So, yes, of course, one should be anxious, but I don't think it's right to think about these issues and dismiss entirely the fact that discount factors, interest rates have come way down. Another way to put it is. And you know this from your work better than I that the present value of tax collections has gone way up. So that's kind of where I would where uh, where I would be when I listen to the alarmists. I think they're overdoing it, as they frankly did for a decade um, in the period of the Simpson-Bowles hysteria and in the period of the inflation hysteria at the end of the financial crisis. Um, When I listen to those like the modern monetary theorists and perhaps even some of their fellow travelers who think we can afford anything we want to do, that also seems to me to be misguided.
3: Let me, so so, um, it sounds like you think we're going back to low long-term real interest rates. I I think it's the the danger, I'm entirely with you, uh, low long-term rates, uh, as long as they last, I think I convinced you it would have been good for the U.S. to lock in those low long-term rates of when we had had that discussion. Uh, because now we are, of course, exposed to if we if we replay the 1980s in order to contain inflation, we will have a decade or two of very very high uh, real interest rates. But I think I think we can agree. I, what I hear from you is is agreement. Uh, debt is fine, any amount of debt, 200% of GDP. If you have a good plan for paying it off. Uh, You talked about debt growing at 2%. It's actually growing more like 5%. Our structural deficits are 5% of GDP. Uh, It sounds like you're you're at the team that that cannot last and and debt eventually must be repaid at the proper rate of interest.
1: Wait, you slipped into one little bit of demagoguery. Um, I, I think I said that the debt to GDP ratio, and as you well know, the debt to GDP ratio rises much less rapidly than uh the than the deficit. Yes, point yes. One. But point one. Point two, you and I are in agreement that at current low long-term real interest rates, um, it's a good idea to be borrowing long rather than to be uh borrowing short. Three, I think you said something with which I which I think is a really important issue, and I am inclined to disagree with you on, though nobody can be certain. Is the right way to understand why we had high real interest rates in the 1980s and high long-term real interest rates, that it was all about fighting inflation. And if we go back to fighting inflation, we we will similarly have way high real interest rates or is the re, is the way to understand why real interest rates have fallen 300 or 400 basis points from the late 80s through the 90s to where they are now when we had already won the victory against inflation by the late 80s having to do with deep forces about patience deep forces about technology and it was the essence of the secular stagnation view to emphasize deeper structural forces as determinants of real interest rates. And so I think it's too facile to say that if we have to have another anti-inflation crusade, we're gonna live in a new world of super high uh, real interest rates. And my own guess strongly supported by the market in every industrial country is that Normal neutral real interest, normal real interest rates are going to be much lower going forward than they were in the 80s and 90s. So I think my master criteria point does have considerable force that if you use the same kinds of reasoning that we use to make the master criteria at that time or that you and I would have used if we had been asked to advise on the master criteria at that time, you would get very considerably more generous criteria today.
3: Okay, we have walked out on debt too much. Neil or HR? Let me ask a question about the
2: dollar, Larry, because it seems to me one of the most striking features of the last 20 years has been the increasing use of financial sanctions as a tool of policy by the United States which began really in the wake of 9-11 uh, in an attempt to, to crack down the financing of terrorism and then grew like top to become our favorite tool in geopolitics. This is also an issue really for HR. And we've seen the culmination of this in the last six weeks with the extraordinary measures taken against Russia following the invasion of Ukraine, the most extraordinary being the freezing of a substantial part of the Russian central bank's reserves. Some people say, I, I don't necessarily agree, but let me hear your thoughts, that we are overusing this particular weapon. And in doing so, we're creating incentives for others uh, to reduce the reliance on the dollar and find other ways of making international payments than the ones that we can control. Do you have a view on this? And if so, what is it? As I have thought harder about this, I have
1: reduced my degree of concern about this, about the issue uh, you uh, you raise. First, the case for financial sanctions is a parallel to Churchill's case for democracy. They're terrible, but they're better than war and they're better than doing nothing. And so that's the case for uh, financial uh, sanctions. Second, I think it's gonna be very hard. I cannot imagine a world where we would like to use financial sanctions for the dollar, and people are going to be doing things in euro, or Japanese yen, or Norwegian kroner. Seems to me in the context where sanctions are going to be relevant, the normal sets of currencies um, that one would think of as an alternative to the dollar, you're likely to be subject to the same sanctions that you would uh, with respect to the dollar. It seems to me that as this possibility of a more atavistic view of currencies takes hold, I would think that people are gonna be more reluctant to hold their reserves in RMB, that the odds that China is gonna play hardball, if, you, if you're really scared about a country for playing hardball to avoid geopolitical problems, you're not going to decide that China is a safe haven. If you think you're going to be in crypto, the crypto universe has to meet, the virtual world of crypto has to meet the real world we live in, and policymakers are going to have ways of controlling those interfaces. So I think it's going to be very difficult for a very long time to uh, support um alternatives to the dollar as a major engine as the major engine of commerce and you'll know you will be much more familiar with the history than i but as i've reflected on it i've come to the view that if the dollar loses its supremacy it is much more likely to be a symptom of our problem than a cause of our problems and that any proper analysis of the loss of the British pound's centrality in the international monetary system would not portray that as a bad thing that weakened Britain. It would portray that as far from the most important consequence of a whole set of developments that had very substantially weakened um, Britain.
2: I agree with that. But if I were to list the things that had led to the decline of sterling and the decline of the British Empire, they would include an excessively large public debt in relation to GDP. Uh, They would include uh, military overstretch commitments in too many parts of the world. They would include the rise of not one, not two, but three hostile. Powers that formed an axis directed against the British Empire, and if if you're seeing where I'm going with this, a lot of these conditions seem to me to apply to the United no, no. States. I, I don't today. I, don't I, I made, we're made we're this agree. argument no. last year in a no. piece. Of the I don't
1: think we're disagree. I don't think we're disagreeing. My point was that if the dollar loses its its centrality, it will be because of a set of other things that are actually far more serious. Than the dollar losing its supremacy. That was my so point. Let, my point let, was not let me, to be highly my point was not in any way to be complacent about the continuing centrality of the power of the United States. That is a that's a different conversation where the factors you adduced are all relevant. But I think this idea that we shouldn't engage in sanctions because then people will find um, alternatives to the use of the dollar. That's the thing that I don't find that plausible.
4: Larry I, I wonder if I want really to continue on uh, in this discussion about the really international financial monetary competitions And Larry, w- what are your thoughts about the need for reform or rebranding of international financial institutions like the IMF or World Bank? And I'm thinking about, the kind of the crisis we're in now with inflation a potential recession being analogous potentially to the 2008 financial crisis when china for example saw it as a a fire sale opportunity uh associated with indebting countries and and developing deep financial and economic relationships with countries in this hemisphere in particular many of which are moving left (laughs) like in in peru potentially in colombia with an upcoming election Lula da Silva's back in, in, in Brazil potentially uh, and i am concerned that that uh you know that that the IMF and World Bank have not proven capable of competing uh with China's efforts to set these debt traps for example for uh for for countries uh, in in a way that uh, they use that leverage uh, for geostrategic benefit um what is your, what's your assessment of kind of of the the international monetary financial institutions and Is there a need for reform, rebranding, reinvigoration of those institutions?
1: The international institutions are products of their shareholders. And so saying they're doing wrong is saying that their shareholders are doing uh, wrong. I do not think in recent years that the United States as the largest shareholder of those institutions has been a particularly effective or skillful, Shareholder, I think at uh, this point, uh, the IMF, which had some real problems of being, in my view, an excessive avatar of austerity and excessively punitive in some of its approaches, has way overcorrected towards uh, wokeness. And I think that's been going on for some years. And I think the World Bank, for a variety of reasons, has become a far less effective institution uh, than uh, it could be. And I think the United States um, bears very substantial uh, responsibility uh, for that. I think the Trump administration was almost... uh, criminally neglectful of uh, those uh, institutions and I think the Biden administration could be doing much better uh, vis-a-vis those institutions. But I think it's important to understand that those institutions do what their shareholders will have them do. They are virtually the only institutions in the world that have a permanently sitting board of directors. Imagine what it would be like if the trustees of Stanford were full-time on campus meeting three times a week for six-hour meetings with the president of uh, Stanford. That's the nature of the governance of the IMF and World Bank. And that's why I think one has to look to their shareholders rather than than themselves. I think you presumed an answer to a question which I would be much less sure of the answer to, which is, are those institutions, institutions for standing up to China and rivaling China? Or are those institutions a place in an increasingly contested world where we can cooperate with China in the limited spheres where cooperation is necessary and is possible. And I think you were a little quicker than I would be to reach the first uh, conclusion rather than seeing them as places where in some limited spheres uh, we we can cooperate.
4: Think that's a fair characterization of my my view in connection with China. But I really think in terms of alternatives, right? An alternative to you know, kind of the debt trap diplomacy that the Chinese have been become pretty adept at.
2: I hate to say it, but Larry gave us two opportunities to change the subject there. One, he used the word wokeness, and two, he drew an analogy with the governance of a university and as the former uh, president of Harvard, he's quite well placed to give us his thoughts on the state of academia in America today. Well, also, uh, I, wanted
3: to, I wanted to follow up on, on wokeness also in our own financial institutions. It's not clear that the the uh, shareholder, that the IMF is not doing exactly what its shareholders want. Our Fed is heading straight into climate change and inequality, uh, just like the IMF. So, so perhaps it's a, a tee up to, to discuss that trend both in financial institutions and in universities
0: so i've been told we have time to get into this thank you neil uh larry i want to throw this at you in three ways number one it's been about what 15 years since you were president of harvard i'm curious as your thoughts about what it takes to be a university president in this considerably more woke day and age number two one of the fellows on this call is trying to build a university in austin texas so your thoughts on what he should be cobbling uh, down in texas and then thirdly, um, this is a little off higher education, but it's K through 12 woke math. And you gave this delicious line about it the other day, quote, in China, math standards are not subject to um, continued erosion by social justice warriors who can't themselves define exponential growth or solve quadratic equations. So feel free to go in any direction or a different one, sir. Okay. Um,
1: John, I I share your lack of enthusiasm for Federal Reserve involvement in uh, climate change. Climate change should be considered to the extent that it is a source of financial risk. I'm aware of no evidence suggesting that if we were to have a financial crisis, there's a likelihood that climate change is among the top 10 uh, likely uh, causes. I certainly do not think that central banks should be involved in allocating capital. Towards green causes, or towards energy independence causes, or towards uh, any other uh, causes. Uh, with respect to um, universities, I think by and large, when incumbents are challenged successfully, it's in some way because the nature of the product and the nature of the industry is changing, mm-hmm. and so. I think the use of information technology and distance distance education and something other than the traditional campus experience is successful, is essential if one's going to challenge incumbents, especially since I think it's necessary to get to scale and it's much easier to get to scale in anything educational If you're using uh, information uh, technology, I think with respect to higher education, I'm going to say some things that are going to be in line with uh, the beliefs of, I suspect, many of the listeners and participants uh, in this podcast. But before I do, I do think it's important to point out that America is an overwhelming leader in higher education, that is probably more of a leader in higher education than it is in almost anything else. And that one should remember and see a lot of good in a culture and a context that has permitted all of that. I think the existence of a large private sector and vigorous and largely unregulated competition within that private sector is uh, an important uh, part of that. I am very concerned by two things. I think any educational debate and discussion has to begin with a judgment on a profound question. Is it more right to think that self esteem should come from achievement or is it more right to think that it, that uh achievement is the product of self esteem hmm. and i think we have moved very substantially in the last generation in our country towards the latter view that achievement is a product of self esteem and i think it has a whole set of uh, pernicious uh, consequences. I think it is a profound moral failure that Harvard University, I choose as uh, an example, now has as its most common grade straight A, that 40% of uh, all grades given at Harvard universities are A's, with no distinction between those in the 61st percentile and those in the 99th percentile. Whereas with loving attention to detail, we have seven different grades that we use to distinguish those within the bottom 10%. And I think that is just very unfortunate in terms of the ways in which it shapes character and shapes young people. And I think in many ways it is worse uh, in our K through 12 education uh, system. I think it needs to be said that if there are problems of excessive wokeness, they are much more severe in the nation's leading private high schools than in the nation's uh, leading private uh, universities. I also think uh, that there are very serious issues around ideological uh, diversity. I think in substantial part, this is inevitable. Um, I like to say that if you love capitalism, there are lots of things you can do. You can go work for a company, you can go work for a newspaper, you can go work for a university. If you hate capitalism, there are many fewer things you can do. You can work for a newspaper, you can work for a university, you can work for a hospital. And therefore, it stands to reason that universities will be disproportionately full of people who have low regard for capitalism, even if nobody does anything that is uh, inappropriate. On top of that, I think a fair amount uh, is done that is um, inappropriate, is, uh, inappropriate. And I have to say that I am more comfortable with the more traditional approach to diversity issues which emphasizes that the larger the lake in which you fish, the bigger the fish you will catch and sees diversity as a route to achieving greater merit and excellence, rather than the more contemporary approach that presumes that those who look uh, different or those who do engage in Have different demographic characteristics, can be presumed as a consequence of that to have different views, and therefore need to be represented in proportion to their numbers in uh, the population, which it seems to me brings a variety of uh, kinds of infirmities uh, to higher
3: education. I'd like to ask you also, that was beautiful. Um, we talked about education a little bit, but of course, uh, research is the other function of university. And one of the worries I see is the increasing limits on freedom of inquiry, freedom of where your research can go, uh, that, that not, just, uh, not just the dumbing down of education uh, and perhaps the f- to a focus on, on, as you say, um, racial and other categories uh, to the exclusion of control variables, uh, but the, um, the, the pressure of left-wing, primarily left-wing uh, I- ideology and, and uh, how you simply cannot do research on, on many, even scientific uh, qualities. I mean, try um, you know, honest research on climate changes is, is reportedly very difficult to do in universities.
1: I think this is a very difficult question, and one needs to distinguish between the the absoluteness of one's commitment to freedom and recognizing that freedom should be circumscribed, some of the choices that are made that circumscribe freedom. So is it reasonable for a university administration to say that the professor in biology who has decided to become a creationist, can no longer teach the introductory biology course, will have a smaller office and lab than uh, they did then uh, they did uh, before will have to live with the fact that the university president chooses, to make clear to anyone who listens that the university does not support his creationist beliefs.
3: Larry, that's way on the slippery slope away no, from the No, no no,
1: no, no, no. I agree clearly. with you. No, I'm saying, so I think anybody who wants to take it, I think the issue is not absolutist need, abs, some absolute freedom that professors should be protected from criticism from administrators. I think the issue is in what way, or from other professors. Other
3: professors, right?
1: I think in I think the question is, in what ways should those criticisms be levied? And that's a different argument. This is usually framed as an academic freedom uh, issue, and I don't think you have. I mean, I used to say when I was president at Harvard, and some people would say I was wrong that academic freedom does not include freedom from criticism. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a very important principle. So then we need to ask the question, when somebody wants to do research on some aspect of gender difference that finds conclusions that many people in the university disagree with, are they not permitted to express their disagreement? Are they not permitted to form together as a group to express their disagreement? So I agree with you that there are unwise things that happen. I agree with you that there are things that university administrators have done that I would not do in their place, that there are groups of faculty members who have taken positions that I would not in a million years sign on to. But I think there's a tendency for people to want to invoke the prestige of academic freedom behind their concerns about those practices. And I'm not actually 100% certain uh, that uh, that that is
0: valid. We have about a couple of minutes here. So I'd like to ask one last question. I wanna get everyone's thoughts on this beginning with our guest. Our guest has described what he calls a trap when it comes to government, which is less confidence in government brought on by politicians who simply overpromise. And we see this correction every two to four years. The American people kick out the incumbent party. They bring in a new party. The new party promptly overpromises. We go back to another party and on it goes. It could happen in 2022. It could happen in 2024. Uh, Larry, let's begin with you. How do we get out of the trap?
1: I don't think there is... Uh... Any uh, silver, uh, silver bullet—the uh, single least, the the single least successful bit of political rhetoric in the last um, fifty years—was Walter Mondale's statement at the 1984 convention.
2: Mr. Reagan will raise taxes,
1: and so will I. He won't tell you. I just did. Walter Mondale was right. On all accounts, on my economics, on John's economics, on anybody's economics, taxes did need to be raised. But the proclamation of truth was not an enormously successful political strategy. So I think we need uh, more dexterous politicians who are more mindful of uh, the consequences of uh, the commitments uh, that uh, that they make. I think, in general, if we do things that reduce the power of interest groups, those are likely to uh, be uh, operative. But I think this is a really hard problem that's certainly beyond the reach of a humble economic scientist like myself.
0: Let's go to the general. HR, your thoughts on leadership.
4: Well, I think I think the most important thing these days is to is to demand that leaders you know, stop compromising you know, their principles, our principles to score partisan political points. And that's easier said than done based on the way our primary system is established and so forth. But I do think that there's so much we could accomplish uh, that because we agree, I think, on a lot of what we need to do to improve mm-hmm. education, for example, to reduce the, the barriers that one has to overcome to take advantage of the great promise of America based on what zip code people are born in. I mean, I just wish that we could create more space for political discourse that doesn't immediately go along party lines and one party accusing the other of malfeasance. Okay, John, the trap. <laughs>
3: Walter Mondale was wrong, Larry. Taxes didn't need to be raised. Taxes needed to be reformed from a horrible Swiss cheese of a tax code to one with lower marginal rates and broad base. And they were in a bipartisan way, which led to a great improvement in the tax code. Uh, Social security was reformed. That needed to be done too. And that is the kind of thing that, that needs to be done and is increasingly hard to do. Confidence needs to be earned. Uh, people have lost confidence in the government because they're right, the elites have been incompetent. Uh, in in many ways, and, and certainly on both parties, how do we get back to to uh, think what to give people what they want, <laughs> regular government? Uh, we have to get back to to constitutional norms. To don't bring a gun to a knife fight. Uh, to um, you, you don't uh, you don't simply get into office and immediately get rid of all the predecessors' executive orders and write a new ones yourself, which both sides have been up to, and the Republicans are going to do it to Biden just as Biden did it to them. Uh, we need to stop uh, trying to argue that the last election was illegitimate, which Trump did in spades and Hillary Clinton also did and the Biden administration is gearing up to do with their voting rights stuff. Uh, the winners will win legitimately. The losers have have the, the protections of our great constitutional system. Uh, you don't get to, we're talking about ignoring Supreme Court orders now uh, because that's political. No, we, we abide by the constitutional order. We understand things will happen slow, It's designed to produce a bipartisan agreement. We have to get the country back to working the way it's supposed to work. That's a job for both sides. One has to blink first, and and I hope it will be the Republicans. Uh, Looks like they're gonna win, but that's the only way to to get out of this mess. Mm -hmm. Neil, final
0: thoughts.
2: Well, any republic founded on the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is, is simply a, an over promising culture. And this isn't a, a bug, it's a feature. American politicians have been over promising since the founding, and they will continue to over promise. And there will therefore be a constant political cycle of over promising, under delivering, and the disappointment of voters. I'm afraid this is not something that's fixable. It's inherent in this republic.
0: Okay. Uh, well, Larry Summers, thanks for joining us today. I want the record to show I behaved myself and didn't ask any silly questions like your favorite Harvard movie. Maybe we'll do that offline if you will. So uh, a viewer's note, we will not be doing a good fellows next week. We'll be back uh, toward the end of April. So stay tuned for that show. On behalf of the good fellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, our special guest today, Larry Summers. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for watching.
3: If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring HR McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.